If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to finish up this summer sermon series. It's got, it got a little bit broken up there because we took some breaks for, for um, some special days, Father's Day and um, Independence Day. And, and, of course, we took off a week. But um, we've been talking about vice and vir- virtue, and it goes right along the lines of some of the teachings years ago of the Catholic Church, and I, I suppose they teach it today, although we hadn't followed their, their list exactly. Seven deadly sins, seven cardinal virtues. Um, essentially, a vice is the root of all sin. Uh, it's, it, it is the root of all sinful ways. That's what a vice is, and what a virtue is is the root of all righteous ways. And so the goal of this whole series has been to expose the vices, those roots in our life that create the fruit of sin, um, and root them out and replant them with virtues, those things that, are the, that bring about the fruits of righteousness in our lives. And I will say, um, it's not the first time I've, I've, I've preached on these subjects, but I will say that the sword cuts both ways when I preach, all right? I don't preach to you. I don't preach at you. I preach what God's Word says, and it, it doesn't mean that I've got my act together in every area. Um, the sword cuts coming and going and uh, God lays my heart bare with the word often and I'm glad that he does his word working in me um, purifies me and sanctifies me but I've seen some pride in me I've seen greed I've seen some envy some gluttony some anger issues that I still deal with and even some sloth in some areas of my life that I know ought to be um, prioritized and so I've, I've been witness to those things in my life. I know where I need to work. I know where my weaknesses are. And I know what I need to do about them. Um, I need to replant some things in those areas. Um, maybe plant a little more uh, in some areas of the humility, the generosity, the joy or the contentment, the temperance, the patience, and the diligence. And I will say this last message cuts just as deep as all the rest of them. Um, Maybe not as much now as it did at one time in the past, but um, I think every man in this church, if we'll be honest with ourselves, this has been a battle for a lot of men for a long time. And so the sword of today's word is going to cut deep, I'm sure, um, but it'll expose a battle in our hearts and in our lives that's worthy of the fight. If you read all of it, I'm not going to read all of it, although we are going to read a significant portion of Scripture today. Um, I think it's always profitable to read God's Word. But um, if you look at Proverbs chapter 5, chapter 6, and all of chapter 7, um, they, the, the, those chapters de- devote a significant amount of attention to the vice of lust. And, um, and I'm, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. Um, I'm going to read all of chapter 7, a portion of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. Um, but I want you to see, and, and this is what stood out to me. Solomon wrote this as a man who came out of a family that dealt with the devastation of lust unchecked. second son of David and Bathsheba. The sword that David brought into his own house through his own failure affected his whole family for the rest of their life. Now Solomon 
Although he's given us some great words of wisdom, he failed in regard to taking his own wisdom in some of these situations. That doesn't mean his wisdom is any less appropriate for us to apply. In fact, I think if you look at the last letter that he wrote, which I believe is the book of Ecclesiastes, he acknowledged his failures in that book and acknowledged that his responsibility should have been um, to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. But look with me in Proverbs chapter 6, and let me read a few verses there, and then we're going to jump in and read all of chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep thy father's commandment, and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thine heart, and tie them about thy neck. He's just telling the importance of what his words are that he's about to give. And when thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou wakest, it shall talk with thee, for the commandment is a lamp, and the law is a light. It, it, it guards your path right in front of you, and it guards your future. And reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And now here's his instruction. To keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman, lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with, thine, with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom, and his clothes not, clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals, and his feet not be burned? So he that goeth in to his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. And then he goes on to describe some of the consequences of, of a man doing that. But look at Proverbs chapter 7. We're going to read this whole chapter. Again, he starts with how important his words are. My son, keep my words. Lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live. And my law is the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers. Write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman. And then here are his words of, of wisdom that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. For at the window of my house I looked through my casement, and behold, among the simple ones I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot, and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now she is without, now in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. So she called him and kissed him, and with an imputed, that's a shameless face, said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. For the goodman, that's the husband, is not at home. He has gone a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway, as an ox goeth to slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. 
Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths, for she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. You know, and paint a very pretty picture of lust and where it leads. That last verse says it all. If you let lust take over and control, um, she will lead you down a path of destruction. So the vice of lust, what is it? We're going to start where we've been starting, at Webster's definition. A desire to gratify the senses, bodily appetite, excessive sexual desire, especially as seeking unrestrained gratification. Now there's some similarities between lust, some similarities between um, greed, some similarities between gluttony. In fact, lust can apply to a number of different things. It doesn't necessarily have to be sexual in nature. But for the most part, when the Bible talks about lust, and when we're talking about lust this morning, we're going to be talking about that, um, that excessive sexual desire that seeking of unrestrained gratification. There's a Greek word, the Greek word, uh, there's actually two Greek words, but the one that's most appropriate for our subject this morning is epithumia. It means superimposed passion. Superimposed passion, a desire that dominates us, and it's especially when that desire is illicit in um, its nature. I'm going to just bullet point some quotes that I read because I think all this just kind of nails down the definition. <clears throat> and I don't have any attributions. I know there's a big deal now about pastors plagiarizing. I don't know who wrote this stuff. I read it, and I don't know who the authors are. Some of it I compiled their statements to make what, I, what made sense to me. Let me give you some bullet point quotes. Lust is an insatiable craving to gratify fleshly desires by seeking to satisfy a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. Here's another. Lust is a desire to possess, to own, to consume without caring about the needs or feelings of others or the will of God. Another one. Lust bypasses love and moves to passion. It eliminates relationships and turns the other person into an object to be used. This is one of my favorite ones. Paul said love never ends, but lust ends when the craving is satisfied, at least temporarily. He said, love is a marathon runner, lust is a 10-yard dash. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said, you've heard it said that a man shall not commit adultery. But Jesus said, I say unto you, whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. So Jesus said that lust is an adultery that takes place in the heart and in the mind. Now, I'm going to take a, a, just, a, just a little bit of a segue for a minute, just a little bit off of the path. Um, a look isn't always a lust. Now, I'm not going to go too deep here, but I can take you through the Bible and show you where the Bible has even pointed out, in many cases, the beauty of women 
And even the, it, it mentioned uh, David, it mentioned Absalom. There's several men in the Bible that it made a point of marking them as people that were nice to look at. They caught the attention of others because of their physical beauty. So a look is not always lust. But a lust almost always begins with a look that lingers too long. All right? An acknowledgement of physical beauty is not necessarily lust, but that is normally where lust starts. Somebody said it like this. Um, you can't have it when a bird flies over your head, but you don't have to let him build a nest there. That's the difference in a look and a lust. Lust can be inflamed by more than what you see. It can be inflamed by what you hear, by what you touch, by what you smell, it can be inflamed by any of your senses that come into play can arouse and impassion within you lust. So what does lust do to us? Essentially, lust exploits what God gave us as a gift, which is sexual desire. God gave us that gift. And if you look at, if you look at humans in nature, animals have... Their sexual life revolves around procreation. But I can show you all through the Bible that man's sexual life is not just about procreation. It's also about pleasure. God gave us a desire for one another. God gave man a desire for woman and woman a desire for man. Essentially what lust does is it takes that God-given desire and perverts it into something that is destructive and insatiable, and it becomes idolatry to us. It takes a God-given desire. But the Satan is specialized in doing this kind of stuff from the very beginning. He takes what God has given to us for good and twists it and perverts it into something um, outside of the context that God intended it to be used in and, um, and creates idolatry, creates rebellion in our own heart. Um, this, this illustration kind of reminded me, um, I saw, and I don't even remember the title of the movie, I'm not a movie buff, so if you ask me about movies and actors and all kind of stuff like that, I don't have a clue most of the time, I, don't, I, don't, I know very few actors by name, except Clint Eastwood and Sam Elliott, they're my favorite cowboys, but um, a, a movie that I saw years and years ago, some men were shipwrecked at sea, and they were in this little lifeboat, and, and eventually, um, they drank all the water that they had, all the fresh water that they had, and they were just overcome with an insatiable thirst and hunger. And several times during that time at sea, um, those men would look at that vast ocean out around them, and, and, and they kind of guarded each other. No, you can't. You, you don't, we can't drink that. It's not fresh water. It won't satisfy us. It won't, it won't help our thirst. But one night, one of the men, when, no, when none of the other men were watching, couldn't take it any longer, he was so insatiably thirsty that he reached over the side of that lifeboat and, and took a handful of water and gulped it. And when he put that in his mouth, he craved it even more and he gulped again. And he was dead by morning. And if you, and if you, and if you look at, I mean, you got an ocean full of salt water out there, um, but it will not provide for you what you need in that area. In, in fact, if you ingest salt water, you'll literally die of thirst because the salt water will make you want more. Uh, and, it, and it'll eventually just poison your kidneys, poison you, shut your life down. So it doesn't satisfy you. 
It just causes you to thirst to death. And that's what lust does. It does not satisfy us. It will not satisfy us. It cannot satisfy us. It has taken a God-given desire and twisted it and perverted it and made it to be something that is destructive and insatiable. And it will become even idolatrous to us. Evidentially, lust drives all kinds of sexual perversion. Lust is in the driver's seat of rape. Lust is in the driver's seat of adultery. Lust is in the driver's seat of pedophilia. Lust pushes incest. Lust, lust pushes prostitution. Lust pushes homosexuality. Lust pushes pornography. All of these things that we see that are aberrations in our society, all of these things, um, they're the fruits of lust that is left unbridled. I'm just going to focus on one for a second because you hear me talk about all the other ones all the time. Pornography is completely and totally driven by lust. Completely and totally driven by lust. It is a, the last stats that I could find, it is a $13 billion a year industry. There are 11,000 hardcore pornographic movies made every year. That's over 300 a day. Every second of every day, there are 28,000 people viewing hardcore pornography on the internet. It brings in a revenue of $3,100 per second. Now, you just do a little bit of math. I'm not a mathematician. That's $186,000 a minute. That's $11 million an hour driven by lust. More than 75% of the internet activity after 10 p.m. is, porno, uh, is pornography driven. One in five mobile searches are, porno, are, are pornograph, pornography driven and most of those are between 13 and 18 year old. Um, I had a lady years ago who had given her son a cell phone at 10 years old. She became concerned that at 11 and 12 he was becoming obsessive about his phone. And when she tried to take it from him, he went ballistic. And she asked me, what do you think is going on? Why is he so angry when I say, let me look at your phone? And I said, it's because he's addicted to Internet pornography. She couldn't believe it. And I said, best thing you can do with that phone is take it outside in the yard and take a hammer to it and destroy it. Get him a flip phone if you need to stay in contact with him. I don't Listen, folks, I don't think we have yet to see what the generation that has pornography at their fingertips 24 hours a day, seven days a week is going to produce. When I was a kid, the exposure to pornography came when some man throwed their dirty magazine out the window and we found it walking down the road. It's accessible right now, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And these kids that are toting phones and have unrestricted internet access are being bombarded with it. Statistics show that 90% of teens and 96% of adults see nothing wrong with pornography. And for people 25 years and older, only 55% believe pornography is wrong. And I would say that number probably decreases over time because people begin to see the damage and effects of it. 
There's, a, there's about a 50% divorce rate, although that number is skewed anymore because people are not getting married, they're just living together. So it's not accurate anymore, but there's a, about a 50% divorce rate in our nation, and unfortunately that's crept into the church as much as it is in society. But 56% of the divorce cases that are settled in court involved an obsession with pornography. Personally and practically, what does lust do to us? The release of restraint. Porn lust drives people to do what they would not normally do, to say what they would not normally say, to go where they would not normally go. Use King David for an example. David was a warrior. He was known by his people as being a man of character and a man of courage who led his nation into battle. But the Bible starts the story of Bathsheba with, in a time when kings go out to war, David stayed home. Now, here's what I believe about Bathsheba. He'd done seen her. He knew who she was. He, he knew whose wife she was. One of his faithful and valiant men who would do battle on the field, and David looked for the opportunity to call Bathsheba unto himself. He, he did not go to war when he should have. He summoned a woman that he knew was married. And when she got pregnant, David, who refused to kill people because they were innocent, had an innocent man intentionally murdered on the front lines of battle. And I'll tell you today, it'll shock you what somebody will do when they are driven by lust. People that you never thought would say and do and go to the places that they do. They are driven and consumed by lust. It causes them to release all of the restraints that they have built up in their life. The rebuke of remorse. You know that word rebuke. It makes me, when I hear the word rebuke, it makes me think of puke. Rebuke. It's just an awful word. And, 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 and when somebody finally crosses that threshold of trying to gratify their lust, it almost always ends in a guilty, sick conscience. They are overcome by remorse. I was reading several stories in the Bible this week to illustrate this. One of the awful stories in David's life is his son Ammon. And, and David had several different wives, but he had a son named Ammon uh, and a daughter named Tamar. They were half-brothers and sisters. Uh, Ammon was infatuated with Tamar to the point that he literally raped her. Um, in fact, that's what drove Absalom to take Ammon's life and what put Absalom and David against each other for the rest of their lives. Um, Ammon raped Tamar, and the Bible says that the moment after the rape, that the hatred that he hated her with was greater than the love that he loved her with. And he drove her out of the room. And it's that rebuke of remorse. It's that, oh no, what have I done? Oh no, we've crossed the line. Oh no, get out of my sight because I don't want to see you anymore. It's to be overcome with remorse, to be overcome by guilt. And, I, and I, I'll just tell you, a lot of rape today ends in murder, especially when there are kids involved in it. Um, and, and the hope in that is that nobody will ever find this out because people are consumed by the, rem 
they're consumed by the remorse themselves, but they don't want anybody else to ever know. And so a lot of the rape ends in murder. It's just an attempt to escape the guilt and the discovery of the sin. Thirdly, it ruptures relationships. Um, lust will destroy a marriage. Lust will destroy a family. Lust will destroy a church. It'll destroy our culture. It is destroying our culture. All you have to do is look across the landscape of our nation and see that we are being destroyed by that constant pursuit of instant gratification sexually, taking it far outside of the parameters that God designed us for. And lastly, and this is, uh, this is important, but I listed it last for a reason. It's the least important, and that it ruins a person's reputation. A man can have a lifetime of personal testimony and ruin it in a matter of seconds. Now, I can give you a long list this morning. David was forgiven, by the way. Immediately when he confessed his sins, he was forgiven. But do you know his failure never, his failure was never forgotten? In fact, when it listed his, uh, when it listed Bathsheba in the genealogy of Christ, it says that she was the one that had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So it, David's sin haunted him for the rest of his life. He was forgiven, but it was never forgotten. Now, um, I can tell you, I, I grew up as a preacher listening to Robbie Zacharias. He had one of the most clearly communicated messages that I've, he was an apologist. Um, I think that led a lot of people to just embrace the truth. But if you look at what has happened in his ministry since his death and what has been exposed there, it makes me literally want to puke. The number of women that he abused, and it started out as one of those deals where I have muscle problems and I'm going to a massage therapist for it and degenerated. The people that tried to cover for him to protect his reputation... Ravi Zacharias will never escape. Whatever good he may have done in his life has been completely overshadowed by the lust that he let control him. Go down the list, and I'm not, I'm not throwing off on these guys. They may be completely forgiven and on their way to heaven, but Jimmy Swaggart will never outlive what he did. Jim Baker will never outlive what he did. There are daddies that will never outlive what they did. There are moms that will never outlive what they did in the eyes of their children. It will ruin your reputation for a few seconds of pleasure, a whole lifetime of remorse. Lust lives under, some guy said this, this didn't come from me, it lives under the law of diminishing return, which means this. You can't satisfy it. You have to keep stepping it up. I challenge you. If you had never watched it, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to stay hung up on the pornography issue, but go sometimes go look at the, the, um, the interview. A lot of you folks ain't going to know who Ted Bundy was. Um, in, in my generation, the 70s and 80s, Ted Bundy was a common household name because he was one of the most notorious serial killers in our nation. But he gave Dr. James Dobson the prison interview just a few hours before he was put to death. And in 45 minutes, he explained how he got to where he got with his violent 
um, sexual proclivities and, and what led him to murder all those women. And it began, it began literally with the softest core pornography that you could imagine and escalated. It's because you cannot satiate lust. It is insatiable. Um, what excited you now won't excite you next week. And what excites you next week won't excite you the week after. When you feed that beast, it grows. And so what begins is a look that lingers, makes plans, initiates contact, escalates, escalates, escalates. And, and sometimes by the time a person recognizes how deep they are and how far they've gone, it's too late and the damage is already done. So what's the cure? I know this is a heavy message this morning, but let's get to the cure. Before we get to the virtue that I think is the cure, let me give you two practical steps. Recognize lust and repent of it. We, we, listen, we, we, the first thing that you have to do in your own heart and in your own mind is recognize that lust is a nasty tool that the devil uses to pervert a God-given desire and his aim is always the same. Jesus said the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. If it is a tool in the devil's hand, it is there to do three things, to kill you, to steal from you, and destroy your life. Jesus said I come to give you something different than that. I come to give you life and give it more abundantly. So the first thing we got to do is recognize that lust is one of Satan's tools that he uses to destroy us, our reputations, our families, our marriages, our churches, our cultures. He uses that to bring about killing, stealing, and destruction. Repent of it. Call it what it is. Stop playing around with it. The second thing that we can do is ratify and reclaim marital sex. God gave that to us. And listen, I know there's some of you... some. I remember one lady years ago when I got on a subject like this. She told me after service, she said, I cringe every time you use the word sex. And I get it because I come from that kind of family. It's old school. But you can't go anywhere in our culture right now and not be bombarded with it. You can't drive up I-75 and not, be, and not see the huge billboards that are promoting it. You can't turn on a television, and unfortunately now you can't turn on a television and watch a commercial without seeing homosexuality being promoted. It's everywhere. We're, our society is completely saturated with it. The sexual revolution brought us here. Our kids are growing up on that. If they never hear a sermon about sexuality in church, they're going to follow what the culture is feeding them, not what the Word of God is. So here's what we need to do. When we recognize what lust is, a tool of the devil to kill, to steal, and destroy, then we need to go back to what, what is God's original desire for us? What did he create us for? And we need to ratify, we need to understand what God said about human sexuality and the confines of human sexuality um, that make it satisfying. And we need to reclaim the marriage bed for what God said it is holy and honorable and there's nothing to be ashamed about it inside the context of a marriage um, sexuality is wholesome and good for the man and the woman and the family Proverbs chapter 5 verse 15 
and he began that chapter talking about immorality and lust. In verse 15, he gave as one of the solutions to immorality and lust. Drink waters out of thine own cistern. He's using some poetic language. And running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of water in the streets. Let them be only thine own and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times. And be thou ravished always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? So here's part of Solomon's solution is find you a wife. Find you a husband and fulfill that God-given desire that you have in the context of marriage and you'll find satisfaction there. You'll find life there. You won't find death and destruction there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you need some New Testament words, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Now, do y'all don't go home and go on a 40-day fast. I got to make you laugh because it's getting too quiet in here. <laughs> and then it says, afterward, you should come together again. So the Satan, listen, the, the apostle Paul was not married. He started this chapter with, if you can live a life like I live, it's better for you not to get married. Especially because God had called him into ministry. He's around all kinds of different women all the time. I have a pastor friend that's, that, that, that traveled this country as an evangelist for 50 plus years as an evangelist. He didn't pastor a church. He traveled as an evangelist. One of the most, I won't call his name, one of the most popular free will Baptist evangelists in our nation. When he went out of town, he would sometimes be gone from his wife for six weeks at a time, even as a young man. He made a covenant with his wife early in his relationship. I will not hug another woman. Billy Graham asked for televisions to be taken out of his room in the hotel. He would not go in an elevator with a woman. These are men that we ought to look at and say, that's the kind of man that I want to be. My, my friend said that he would, refused to hug a woman because he didn't need the temptation of a woman's touch. He didn't want his wife to wonder who he was hugging when he hadn't been around her for six, eight weeks at a time. The Apostle Paul, even though he wasn't married, recognized that limiting sexual relationship in a marriage gives the enemy an opportunity that he did not have. There is a way to satisfy our desire, and that is in the context of a marriage. Hebrews chapter 11, 13 verse 4 says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. That means God approves of the marriage bed. But whoremongers and adulterers. That word whoremongers I believe is the, the original word is 
um, porneos, which is any kind of sexual immorality, and adultery is specifically sexual immorality that happens outside the context of marriage when somebody takes another man's wife or vice versa. Now you say, preacher, that's all well and good, but I ain't married. Well, I can tell you, according to what the scripture says, it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. I know that is so abnormal in our culture today. But I also know that is so biblical. Tim Tebow has been mocked for his position on sexuality. Tim Tebow is dead in line with God's word. The last thing is that we have to replant and restore chastity. That's a word you don't even hear anymore as a virtue. What is chastity? It is, it's the antithesis of lust. And, uh, and, and literally the definition would depend on whether you're married or unmarried, how it applies to you. And let me just say, if it, chastity as far as being unmarried is concerned means complete abstinence. That's what it means. You, you can try to make it anything you want it to mean, but that's not what it means. If you don't agree with this definition, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Complete abstinence, sexual purity, sexual purity in your mind, sexual purity in your body, sexual purity in your will. It is a commitment to be pure until you're married. Inside the marriage bond, it is absolute exclusiveness. It is fidelity, faithfulness, and monogamy between a man and a woman for a lifetime. Sexual purity again in the mind, in the body, and in the will between a man and his wife. As a general definition, chastity means the pursuit of moral and sexual purity. Mind, body, spirit, will. I'm going to read to you a passage. L listen to what Job said. I always have such a hard time finding Job. Listen to what Job said in chapter 31. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? For what portion of God is there from above and what inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is not destruction to the wicked and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? Job saying, listen, I got to guard my eyes because God knows. I know, God knows what he has given to me. God knows what I have. God knows what I do. Doth he not see my ways and count all my steps? If I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to deceit, let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. If my step hath turned out of the way and mine heart walked after mine eyes, don't, don't you like that? My heart walked after my eyes. My heart walked after my eyes. That's a good definition of lust. And if any blot hath cleaved to mine hands, then let me sow, let another eat. Job's pronouncing his own punishment. He said, if I do these things, I deserve what I get. I remember a preacher friend of mine that was trying to help his alcoholic uncle out one night. He said, his uncle George came to church to a revival meeting drunk. He said, every time he'd preach, 
his uncle would holler out, amen. He was drunk. And he said, I finally stopped preaching. He said, shut up, George. Just shut up, Uncle George. You're drunk and you're disturbing the service. So after the service, his Uncle George said, Bert, you hurt my feelings. Bert's going to be with the Lord now. He said, Bert, you hurt my feelings. He said, I meant to hurt your feelings. You come in here drunk and you're disturbing the service. And, and George said, I want to quit drinking. I came in here to get saved. I want to get right with God. So he said, all right, if you're ready, let's go. They got down on the altar and Bert said, I'm going to lead you in a sinner's prayer and I want you to say this after me. And so he led him in those first steps of the sinner's prayer and then he said, and Lord, if I ever take another drink, I want you to strike me dead. And Uncle George stopped. He said, wait a minute. He said, too far, that's too far. Job's saying, if I do this, if I do this, then I deserve this. Listen to what he said. If mine heart have been deceived by a woman, or if I have laid wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind into another, and let others bow down upon her. For this is a heinous crime, yea, it is an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For it is a fire that consumeth to destruction, and would root out all mine increase. Job said sexual immorality will destroy everything that I've tried to build with my life. So how do we get there? This is, I'm, I'm, I'm closing right here, I promise you. How do we get there? Um, if you ask anybody that has any common sense whatsoever, and even though I don't practice either one of these, this is, what, this is the answer. How do we get a healthy body? Diet and exercise. Diet and exercise. That's how we would all say, universally, if I want my body to be healthy, I need to watch what I eat and I need to engage myself in exercise. When it comes to putting on chastity, um, we have to do the hard work of diet and exercise. Let's take them in reverse order. Exercise is resistance. Exercise is resistance. The muscles need resistance in order to keep, get stronger. When you lift weights... It, there's a strain on the muscles. It ain't easy to do. Um, it, it, it hurts to do it. It takes effort to do it. Um, the more you do it, the easier it gets. The way that exercise works is when, uh, when, when, you, when you work with one weight today, that weight will be a little bit easier to carry tomorrow. And by next week, the weight that you started with will be simple. You just keep moving it up. You keep moving the resistance up until you reach that point of strength. Here's what the Bible says, that we need those muscles of morality. We need purity in our life. So we have to begin to exercise some resistance and some restraint. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The devil's planting traps all around us for our eyes, for our ears. He is, he is putting snares all around our path. And we have to learn to act in resistance. Resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. Romans chapter 8 verse 13. For if we live after the flesh we'll die. But if we through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body we will live. So exercise isn't easy. But we've got to begin to put up some resistance to these things. And take some, some paths that will cause us um, 
make some hard decisions. Um, this has caused me to lust. I'm going to cut this off of my life. This has, uh, and, and listen, it, it comes with the Spirit's help. We can learn to look away. We can learn to lay down the phone. We can learn to change the channel. We can learn to put up a wall of resistance. The longer you do it, the easier that it gets. Because you build up that spiritual muscle of resistance. The second thing is diet. And this is, I think, even more important than the exercise itself. Exercise is what your body resists. Diet is what your body receives. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at these verses very carefully with me. Because I'm going to show you some things in these verses that I didn't really see before until I began studying for this message. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in the glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. We behold the glory of God, or the glory of the Lord, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We behold the glory of Jesus, and we're changed by it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And I would challenge you to read the verses ahead of this because I promise you that he's talking about the same kind of things that we've been talking about. He's talking about lust, fornication, sexual immorality. And he said, but that's not the kind of people we are anymore. We're the kind of people that have put on the new man. But listen to what he said, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Renewed in knowledge. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Paul's nailing it down to the Thessalonican church. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. That is, abstain from any sex outside the context of marriage. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence. We don't use that word anymore. It just means not in the passion of lust. Even as the Gentiles, that's what they do. Why did they do it? Because they don't know God. So here's what our daily diet. We've got to put up resistance. Listen, you can't, you can't keep watching what you're watching. You can't keep doing what you're doing. You've got, you got to put up some resistance to lust. It ain't going to just disappear. There has to be some resistance from our own lives, from our own um, decision-making. But, but aside from that, the best thing that we can do for, apart from the exercise is what we receive into our life. And our diet has to be a steady diet of, of coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a deeper and more personal way. Our daily diet, what Paul laid out in those three verses, that the longer you gaze upon what Christ has done, who Christ is, what He's doing in our life, the, the more you glory in who He is and what He's done, the more you learn about Him, the more intimately you know Him, the more you feed your body with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ the more control you have over your fleshly appetites. The more you look at Jesus, the less you look to lust. The more you look to Jesus, the more control the Spirit of God will give you so that you're not consumed by those lusts. So, I'm done. Let me just say this. It's time to stop playing around with this, all right? It's just time, it's time to stop clinging to lust like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. 
You say amen if you want to. You can say, oh, me, you can leave here mad. I don't care. I'm telling you, lust will destroy. I'm sick of seeing it destroy, all right? I'm sick of seeing marriages destroyed by it. I'm sick of seeing children separated by it. I'm, I'm just sick of what lust has brought to our culture. And it's time to stop clinging to it. It's time to stop pretending like it's no big deal. It's driving every sexual perversion that pervades our culture today. It's driven by lust. And it's time to, to, to stop laughing at chastity. That's what God would have for us. It's time for us to stop treating that like it's a strange idea. That's God's way. We got to reverse that, folks. We had a sexual revolution back in the 60s, and we're reaping the fruits of it now. What if we had a chastity revolution in the 2020s where we began to exalt God's order and design for human sexuality? I'm t this ship ain't going to turn around quickly, but it can turn. But if in order for it to do that, we got to stop clinging to what the devil has planted for us and start drawing ourselves back into what Christ has planned for our lives. And I'm going to tell you this morning that you can sit in this building and discount everything I said, but you might be one poor choice away from losing your marriage. You might be one poor choice away from losing your family. You might be one poor choice away from throwing away your testimony and reputation. If you're here this morning and unmarried, you might be one poor choice from giving away what you can't ever get back. And the choice that we make today and in days to come can save us a lot of regret down the road. It's time to stop clinging to lust and laughing at purity, chastity. Secondly, it's time to stop wallowing in the guilt of past failures. Guilt won't save you. It won't. Listen, I got failures in my past. I ain't proud of any of them. I hate all of them. The, but the guilt didn't save me. God's grace did. My wife will tell you that the first seven years we were married, I was, I was a hellion. I'm ashamed of the way that I lived my life in those years. But she'll also tell you that the man she's married to today is not the man that she married. Got the same name, got the same DNA, but I got Jesus in me, and Jesus made a difference. I can't go back. I wish I could, I've tried to make it up to my wife um, uh, in the way that I live and treat her now, but I can't go back and change any of that in the past. Neither one of us can. But we can live in the grace that God has, has given us, the, the forgiveness, the healing, the strength, the restoration. And I know I've harped about David a lot, but if you look at David, some of his greatest work was after his failure. He never outlived that failure. But some of the greatest psalms that he wrote, some of the, some of the most incredible poetry that we have in, in the psalm book of the Jews is what David wrote after he began to walk in the grace of God post-failure. And, and this has always been an interesting side note to me for David. The Bible said when he was an old man, he couldn't get warm. And they put a young maiden in the bed with him. A maiden in the Bible means a virgin. But the Bible made a very clear point of saying, but David knew her not. Which means David conquered. He overcame. He moved forward.
He didn't let that guilt consume him. He walked in the grace of God and conquered his lust. So we got to stop clinging to lust and laughing at chastity. we got to stop wallowing in the guilt of our past failures because guilt won't save you. Grace will. And last but not least, it's time to stop thinking that we can overcome lust on our own or put on chastity just because we try to. We can't. I can't. You can't. It, only Jesus can satisfy the hunger and the thirst of our soul. Only Jesus can give us victory over our own flesh. So instead of looking with lust, we got to look on Jesus and linger there and lavish ourselves in the love that he's bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And then the Bible goes on to say, we know that when we see him, We'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And every man that has that hope in him will purify himself, even as Christ is pure. Let's stand together this morning. Father God, I thank you for your word. I know it's been uncomfortable to hear and uncomfortable for me to preach. But it's your word nonetheless. And I don't know of an any more relevant word that we need for our lives and for our culture than this one. We can't go back and change anything. But today's a new day. Your mercies are new. Today is a day that we can yield this portion of our life to you and say, Lord, root it out and replant moral virtue, purity. We're bombarded with aberrant sexuality, but we don't have to participate in it. We don't have to be entertained by it. We don't have to fall into that trap. And here's the truth, God. Sometimes folks have played around with it for years. But there'll come a day like the little boy with the rattlesnake that it'll bite us. And when it does, it'll be devastating. So deal with our hearts right here and right now and expose it. I don't anticipate there being a flood of folks coming to the altar this morning. But my concern is what you do in our hearts. And so I pray you do that work. Do that work. Strengthen the marriages that are in this church, God. Make them everything, God, that they can be, that you want them to be. It's entirely possible for us to be completely satisfied. God, if there's a person here lost this morning, they don't stand a chance of defeating this enemy without Jesus. Not a chance. They need you, Jesus. I pray this morning they'd look on you. They'd fall at you.
worship you, surrender to you. We'll praise you for all you do in Jesus' name.